Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. I've seen quite a few videos on social media recently of young women soliciting help in finding the perfect dress for graduation. Might I suggest you add Macy's to your list? They have lots of options for dresses that will transition perfectly from under your gown to that incredible dinner with family after the ceremony. Check out options from brands like On 34th, Michael Kors, DKNY, and many more. Shop at Macy's.com or in-store. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Support for today's episode comes from Clorox. When it counts, trust Clorox. The same way we trust essential workers to provide the care they give to us, our families trust us to give them a safe and protected home. Our community heroes trust Clorox to keep places like hospitals and grocery stores disinfected. So I know I too can trust Clorox to provide my home with a safe environment and a home we can all enjoy. That's why I trust Clorox regular bleach. 
by mixing a one-third cup of Clorox regular bleach with one gallon of water. When used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces, it kills 99.9% .9 of germs and bacteria on a variety of surfaces. From our kitchen floors to the countertops to bathroom tubs and of course our laundry whites. I know I can count on Clorox disinfecting products to give myself and my family the best home we deserve. With two little ones, there's always something to wipe down. We use Clorox wipes often on our countertops and appliances and to clean up spills from the floor. Especially right now, it's important to think about all the small ways we can keep our spaces as safe as possible. When it counts, trust Clorox. Support for today's episode also comes from Theragun. If you're like me, any stress you might be experiencing shows up as tension somewhere in your body. For me, it tends to be in my back. Massages haven't been an option this year, but thank goodness I've been able to use the Theragun. Theragun is the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. And now it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. That's because the all-new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor that's so quiet you'll wonder if it's on while you soothe your aching muscles with its signature power, amplitude, and effectiveness. I've been using it on my back and hamstrings a couple of times a week, and it really makes a difference. I notice less tension after using it, and when I use it closer to bedtime, I find that it helps me to fall asleep easier as well. It makes a great addition to your nighttime routine. If you've been holding tension in your body, consider trying Theragun for 30 days. There's no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized app, and the quiet and power you need. Prices start at $199. To grab your Gen 4 Theragun today, go to theragun.com slash TBG right now. That's theragun.com slash TBG. Now let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 182 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. Today, we're digging into the topic of consensual non-monogamy. While monogamous relationships may be the relationship types we hear about most often, they're definitely not the only relationship types that exist. Here to help us break it all down is an expert in this area, Ruby B. Johnson. Ruby has been a therapist for over 19 years and a sex therapist for six years. She's in private practice in Plano, Texas, and identifies as a queer and polyamorous woman. She specializes in ethically non-monogamous partnerships and families, kink and BDSM, desire discrepancy, and infidelity. 
Outside of therapy, her passions are speaking and writing. Ruby and I discuss some of the most common misconceptions about consensual non-monogamy, how to determine whether a polyamorous relationship is a good fit for you, some considerations in a polyamorous relationship, how to unpack some of the stigma related to consensual non-monogamy, and of course, she shares some of her favorite resources. If anything stands out to you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share it with us using the hashtag TBG in session. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ruby. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited. So this has been a widely requested topic. The community <laughs> has wanted me to find someone to come on and talk about polyamorous relationships, open relationships. And so I heard through colleagues that you were the expert in this area. So I'm thrilled that you're able to <laughs> I don't know about that, but thank you. <laughs> How did you get into this as your specialty? I got into private practice in 2014. And before that, I started identifying as polyamorous myself at age 38. So it was about 10 years ago. So when I got into private practice, found that many people who are polyamorous, who are in open relationships, did not have the best experiences with therapists. The therapists were not necessarily competent in the area. They thought what they did with a monogamous couple, they can do with a polyamorous partnerships and they were just not having good experiences with stigma and all of that stuff. So I decided, you know what, it's the community that I live in. So I'll start working with that community as my niche. I always find it so interesting that I think a lot of therapists have that same story, right? Is that we identify as a part of a community or we have a certain struggle ourselves and then that becomes a part of our story as a clinician. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It extends beyond polyamory. There's also the queer community, the kink community. And so with me having those various identities myself, I feel like I have a certain passion about it. I have a level of putting attention to it and recognizing that not only is it that therapeutic intervention in a way of modalities and theories, but it's also the sociopolitical angle that comes into it, which I think we sometimes forget that we operate in this vast system. Like you can't necessarily separate the things. Yeah. You can't separate it. So can you give us a crash course on some of the language and the terms <laughs> that people in the community use or things that people might need to be aware of? So you've already said ethical non-monogamy. So is that kind of like the umbrella term? Yes, it's ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy. That's the, the broad umbrella. And then underneath that, you have open relationships. You have people who are have what we call designer relationships. You have polyamorous relationships. You have people in the lifestyle. So there's like solo polyamory, there's all of these vast relationship dynamics or constellations or ways that you can be in your love style underneath consensual non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamy. I'm going to talk about polyamory specifically, and the way we define polyamory is many loves. A hard definition that I like to use is multiple simultaneous relationships that can either be committed or romantic where everyone consents and everyone is aware of what's going on and what is happening. And so that's the working definition that I have within my practice. There's the common triad, which is three people within a relationship. There's, sometimes it can be a couple wanting to have what they call a third, make a, a thruple 
And there's this different types of constellation. There's the quad where it's two couples together. There is what we call the polyamorous or the polycule where you have the people who are in relationships and all of their partners. And so it is a huge lexicon, really mm-hmm. huge. Yeah. And so there's a difference between being in a polyamorous relationship and an open relationship. Can you talk about that difference? Yeah. Um, a polyamorous relationship, I, I like to tell people that it you can view it as a type of open relationship, but it's not necessarily what they call an open relationship because there's a focus on those romantic long-term connections. Within an open relationship, you can design it to look anywhere you want. You're open to multiple partners. You're open to multiple sexual relationships. Some people put the lifestyle or swinging underneath open relationships. It doesn't have to specifically focus on having those long-term romantic connections. Someone who is open is just welcoming to emotional and physical connections, but not necessarily long-term. Ah, okay. So that's kind of like the defining characteristic is the the long-term nature of the relationships. Yes. Got it. Okay. And so you mentioned another term that I had not heard of. Did you say solo polyamorous relationship? Yes. Solo polyamorous. (laughs) Can you say more about that? Solo polyamorous is an individual who lives alone typically. Then they have the separation of finances and they have other relationships, but they're not hierarchical in nature. So they are with people, but there's not any cohabitating or commingling of finances and necess- per se living space. And the solo polyamorous like to say that they're their primary partner. They're the one that they're in a primary relationship with. They come first and then they have the other relationships around them. Got it. Okay. And you mentioned the term designer relationship. Is that just kind of designing what you would like your relationship to look like? Or is that something different? Yes, that's designing what you would like your relationship to look like. There's all types of ways that people do relationships. I have clients who they have what we call social monogamy you know, and how they present to the world is as a monogamous couple with family, et cetera. But what they do outside of that, they don't have physical monogamy. They have other outside relationships or friends with benefits or hookups, but it doesn't disrupt the social representation of who they are as a family or as a couple. And so you have that way that you can design your relationship to look like that. There's a great book called Designer Relationships by Mark Michaels and Patricia Johnson. And they actually talk about in that book how you can define what you want your relationship to look like and some parameters and ideas on how to do that. Got it. And I am curious to hear, Ruby, so you said that you began to identify yourself 10 years ago as being in or wanting to be in a polyamorous relationship. Can you give us a sense of the timeline for like when this became something that more people were talking about? Because basically what you're saying is that relationships don't have to look just one way. And I think when you say it, it seems really like, yeah, duh, like they can look however we want. But of course, societally, that is not how it has been. So at what point did this become something that more people were talking about and exploring? I would say over the last decade, decade and a half, it has become back when I was, I was 38. So that was like 2010, 
2011, somewhere around there. Polyamory wasn't in my preview. I didn't know what the term was until I met this person that I started dating and they introduced me to it. And so over the last decade, the prevalence, the the, the visibility, the representation of polyamory has shifted. There was a whole lot of stigma attached to actually what it was. Like, was it polygamy? Was it always about a, a couple wanting to find a third? And so it was viewed with a whole lot of stigma. But slowly over the last decade, we've had people come out with more books. We have folks like this doing more interviews on podcasts. And so it started to become seen as a viable relationship choice other than monogamy. And mm-hmm. so I would say it has increased over the last decade. Got it. Got it. So what are some of the common myths that you hear, Ruby, related to ethical non-monogamy? <laughs> Probably tons. <laughs> <laughs> yes. One of them is that it's all about sex. And it's not all about sex when it comes to uh, polyamorous relationships. So that's the one I'm going to focus on there. But also there are some aspects where it is about sex, but that is in the lifestyle. So it's important that we separate the lifestyle or swinging from polyamory. But sometimes people conflate the two together. And so one of them is that it's all about sex which is not true. Sex is a part of it, but it's more about the relational and emotional connection. Another one is that people who are polyamorous are non-committal. That means that there is a struggle with committing to one particular person. And so it's not necessarily non-committal. It's the way we do commitment is different. It's not commitment to one person without being able to commit to another person. It's a lot more broad in the definition of commitment. Another one is that People who are polyamorous are were full of disease, mm. <laughs> sexually transmitted diseases. It's not true. Actually, people who are polyamorous are more conscious about safer sex practices than, than many other groups. Another one is that I'm going to take a risk in saying this, but it's this is a white folks thing. I'm like, no, there's a whole community of Black people that are polyamorous. And so its representation may have it as white, affluent. That's what polyamorous couples look like. But actually, there's a strong Black and poly community that is out there, which is what I'm a part of. And so those are a few of the myths that's out there about it. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, because I do think that, you know, like anything, when not a lot of people have been talking about it or it is newer to the lexicon, then people have all kinds of misconceptions about what this means. Right. Yeah, Yeah. they do have a lot of misconceptions and it's usually based upon media representation is what is being fed to us about something because our information tends to come from what people feed us rather than what we go and search for. So I know for me, I had my own stigmas and and misconceptions and misrepresentations myself. So I had to go and do my own independent research for myself. And I did a lot of reading and a lot of talking to a lot of people. And so me immersing myself within the community was the best thing that I could do because then I got a real flavor for what was going on and what was happening and allowed myself to be open to it. Right. 
So let's say that if there is someone listening or consuming this interview and they are curious and thinking, maybe I want to talk with my current partner about us being open to consensual non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. How might they bring that up with a partner? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, <laughs> carefully. Yes. One of the things that I encourage is that you get your education first, start doing your own research and present it to your partner as something that is a curiosity, present it to them as something, hey, this is what I read about and thinking about what are your thoughts about it, but kind of do it in that way that is informed as much as possible and present it as an idea, not as this is what I want to do. That's my biggest suggestion. When couples come to me and they're wanting to open their relationship up, the first thing that I have them do is read, get some education. Is this what you want to do? Read this book, read that book, look at the pitfalls here, look at how this would change the relationship. There's a great book I like to recommend for clients, which is Rewriting the Rules. And it actually talks about how you redefine commitment, monogamy, all of those terms, but just kind of ease into it and be inquisitive more than anything at first. Mm -hmm. And would you say in your experience that there is something that is kind of like the point at which couples begin having these conversations or is it a different entry point for different people? A different entry point for different people from the couple who's been together for 30 years and they're like, we want to do something different to the couple who is brand new, but they don't know if they want to stay in monogamous relationship and they want to start out with it being open and what does that look like for them. So it's just different places in your life, different relationship places on how you want to do it. Mm -hmm. It sounds like this is a large part of what you do with your clients when they're, you know, coming to you trying to figure this out. What kinds of questions do you feel like you should ask yourself and maybe your partner if this is something that you're considering? Some of it asks, what is your intention? What is the end goal here? What are you looking to do when opening your relationship? And that's a really important thing because it kind of drives which direction you want to go. A lot of times people don't realize that going from a monogamous paradigm and that mononormative way of being And shifting to polyamorous is you're shifting a whole lot of ideology. You're shifting a whole lot of social constructs. You're just shifting a whole lot of stuff. And ask yourself, are you ready to take that journey in opening your relationship? Because it changes family dynamic, how you interact with your family. It's just, it's a big shift and it's against the norm. And so ask yourself, is this something that I want to do? I know for me personally, it wasn't something necessarily I asked myself a whole lot of questions about. I was 38. (laughs) I'm like, I'm living my life, right? (laughs) So I was at a, a different place in my life to where I knew what I was doing wasn't fulfilling for me, wasn't getting me where I wanted to be within my relationships. And then so I took my own personal journey there. Mm hmm. So I think one thing that I often hear, Ruby, and I would love to hear your thoughts about. So it feels like there are instances where some couples begin to explore what this might look like after there has been some infidelity. And so I'd love to know, like, I would imagine just like lots of couples stay together after infidelity. 
it's not that it can't work, but it, it does often feel sometimes like, okay, well, let's try this. And so I would love to hear just like how you might work with a couple or, you know, things that you would suggest to someone who may be considering this after there's been infidelity in the relationship. Yeah, that's a real big one. And the reason that I say that's a real, I have like two, three clients I'm working with that right now. I tend to get a lot of that for some reason. And they want to open it, open the relationship by way of wanting to be able to maintain a relationship with the person that they were having an affair with, which is really difficult. And it's very hard because you're basically wanting to open your relationship and say, okay, I I love this person. I also love my wife or I love my husband. I don't want to end the relationship or my partner because it happens with same-sex partners also. And I don't want to end my relationship with them. And I don't want to end my relationship with this other person. But then you're dealing with, on the other partner side, you're dealing with betrayal. You're dealing with hurt. You're dealing with this person represents that this is the harm that happened within our relationship. So it takes a whole lot of fortitude, a whole lot of hard decisions. And can it happen? Absolutely. I've seen it happen and I've seen people go on and have happy relationships. Does it hurt? Absolutely. Can it not work? Can it be like, we don't want to use polyamory as a justification for doing stuff that is a violation of the commitment within a relationship? So that's a very good question. It's also very complex because it involves matters of the heart that are in betrayal. And so that's real difficult because Mm -hmm. the whole basis of being in polyamorous relationships is consent and awareness. Right. And so if you don't have consent and you don't have awareness of what's going on, that's going to be real difficult to build that trust and get back to. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for people who are say, you know, you've had this conversation with your partner and you decided, OK, we want to maybe decide that we have an ethical, ethically non-monogamous relationship. What are some of the rules or the boundaries that you do want to set? Um, because now you're adding more people. So we know how communication can sometimes be difficult, which mm-hmm. is two people. And mm-hmm. so now we're adding more people. So what are some of the rules and boundaries that people need to be mindful of? Some of the pitfalls is that there isn't that consistent check-in with your partner about what is going on and what is happening. The way that being in polyamorous relationships, how you are successful is based a lot upon awareness and shared meaning. And when I say shared meaning, it's kind of like, do we both have an understanding of what this agreement is? Do we both have an understanding of what this expectation is? Is it a realistic expectation? So one of the first things that I have the client do in the very beginning is define polyamory for each person, define what commitment is, define what trust is, define what communication is, to start defining things. Because once you get that foundation of shared meaning, then you're able to build your agreements. Then you're able to build the agreements of when do I let you know that I'm interested in someone? Do I tell you from the jump that I'm interested or is it do I tell you when I start flirting? Those types of things. How often are we going to have our meetings as a couple? What are going to be our sacred moments together? What are we going to have that's just ours? Those types of conversations where you try to preserve what you have as a unit, but still invite other people into your life. 
And so it's not about losing what you have with your partner. It's about enhancing the individual lives, which in turn enhance the, the partnerships or the couple's lives. And are there other pitfalls that you would say you've seen happen for clients? Yes, I've seen one of them is, is lack of awareness, which is a big one. Lack of fluid communication. Also operating in secrecy versus privacy. Sometimes you have your private things, your your private moments, some things you want to keep to yourself. There's a difference between secrecy, privacy, and transparency and understanding how those operate within relationships. Because when we're in a monogamous relationship and we go to shift out into a polyamorous relationship, some of the ways that we view secrecy, privacy, and transparency are going to shift. Privacy is that I have discernment of who I share my stuff with. Secrecy is that I'm doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing and I just don't want to tell you. That's that shame piece. And transparency for some people means that I get to know each and every detail of your thoughts and what's going on and and what's happening. And so some of the pitfalls come into a misunderstanding of how that awareness, what it looks like and what consent looks like operating in those spaces. Another one is to have to have the idea that, okay, we're going to date as a couple or we're going to date individually and not having that conversation on what that looks like. I have a client right now that I'm working with and they've been together 10 years and they decided to open their relationship. His idea of opening a relationship was them getting a third and dating as a couple. Her idea of opening a relationship was her starting her own individual relationships. And that happened and they didn't have an understanding of where they were going and what they were doing. They ended up in therapy (laughs) because there was some infidelity that happened. And there's also great successes. Yeah. The other thing that I'm thinking is what happens if you do decide to open up your relationship and you try it and then let's say some months or years later, you decide this isn't actually what I want anymore, but you've opened it now, right? Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that it requires a conversation, but you might Mm -hmm. not be in the same place now in terms of what you're looking for. Exactly. That happens Mm -hmm. at different phases of your life. You want different things. And so recognizing, though, that your partner may have a different perspective and a different point of view. And how do you have that conversation? Do monogamous and polyamorous, you know, what I call mixed orientation relationships, monopoly relationships work? Absolutely. But it requires a whole lot of conversation and a whole lot of maturity and saying, okay, I want my partner to be happy and I want me to be happy. So what can I do for us to contribute to both of our happiness without losing myself Mm -hmm. you know and that's that grown folks stuff (laughs) right that that requires (laughs) the kind of deep communication that would be required in any constellation of right right it does it does you know and polyamorous is a lot of fun it's it could be a lot of fun and people like to focus on the what Like, I like these questions because it's kind of like, what are the pitfalls? How can you be successful? What are some things to look for? What are some questions to ask? What I love about it is that there's an opportunity for you to grow as an individual. The most beautiful thing that I witness with clients is when they open their relationship and they discover new things about themselves. Wow, I didn't know that I was, I had that creativity. I didn't know that I wanted to 
to start exploring this with this new person. I didn't know that I, I like Japanese food. It was just you're exposed to, to different things based upon the people that you're with. And so that's a great positive um, piece of being in a polyamorous relationship or opening your relationship is that you get to have your own self-discovery, which is a whole lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting sometimes, too, that there are lots of pieces of ourselves that we cannot uncover individually. There's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that only happens in relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I could see, you know, how you are stretching and learning new things about yourself in this way. So you've already mentioned the importance of community and shared, you know, that it has been really difficult for people and even you individually to kind of find community around being polyamorous or in ethically non-monogamous relationships. Where should people begin to look to kind of find more resources or have conversations with people who are a part of the community? Join meetup.com. And if you want to meet people, start going to some of those meetings that they have because, you know, here in Plano, I used to have a meetup group where people would come who are curious about non-monogamous relationships. And you just can come and ask questions of people who are experienced. Search on Facebook. (laughs) You know, you can find various groups, various meetups. You can find people having lots of interesting conversations. You can even like Google like for good books to read and you know, just so you get your own understanding of the language so you know what to search for. But it's going to be something that you intentionally look for because unfortunately, you know, people are not out about being polyamorous because there is still some stigma that's attached to it. And people have a lot to risk and a lot to lose, especially when around children and et cetera. So you're going to have to go out and search for these groups and these people and and where they are. For me, when I first started doing this deal, I was looking into groups that weren't people, there were not people who looked like me. And so for me, it was very important that I find people who look like me who were practicing polyamory. So I went out and I found that community. I went out and I found the Black and Poly community. And so there's an entire group on Facebook with like 16,000 members who are Black and polyamorous. And there's other little small groups that are spinoffs from that. But the community is out there. You have to search for it, word of mouth. But you're not alone if something that you're curious about. So you mentioned another term, Ruby, that I hadn't heard before in terms of a couple maybe being socially monogamous, where maybe they are outwardly to family and friends monogamous, but then, you know, in private are having very different kinds of relationships. And so Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear if you do, though, want to share this with friends and family, how do you have those conversations? Yeah, the thing is, in having those conversations, it's you can't really protect people from their discomfort. You know what I mean? And so being honest and forthright, you know, what I tell clients all the time and is what I did with my family, being authentic is all you got. <laughs> and, and being who you are is, is the greatest gift. And so sitting down, doing it, you know, having the usual, have good timing, you know, being careful with your words, knowing their personality. But it's up to you when, where, and how you want to disclose to your family and recognizing that everyone is going to support you in some of your life choices and decisions that you make. And there's 
different types of ways of being monogamous. I mentioned socially monogamous. There's also emotionally monogamous. There's physically monogamous. And there's just different ways that some people, they don't necessarily have to be sexually monogamous, but they want to be emotionally monogamous. And so some people, you know, explaining that to family members may not be something that's necessary for them because it's it's not an emotional connection. But for some people, it is because they may want to bring someone who they're physically having a relationship with to an event. It just depends. Mm-hmm. Just depends. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned also just the stigmas that lots of people still have related to non-monogamous or ethically non-monogamous relationships. How do you go about unpacking some of these stigmas that you might have? I mean, you know, all of us have grown up, like we talked about, in a society where this was not something that lots of people were talking about. So I would imagine lots of us have stigmas that we need to unpack related to this. Oh, yeah. we, we A lot of us do. You know, it's that in, internalized bias that you have your own internalized phobias and isms and and fears around it. And it's because there was such a fear that was put into us that someone is threatening our relationship at all the time. You know, it's that that fear. And so a lot of the unpacking that I do with clients is centered around fear. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of losing? You know, are you fearful of abandonment? Are you fearful of being rejected? You kind of get to the source of where that stigma is coming from. Is it rooted in those particular fears? Also, it's rooted in the appearance. You want to have the appearance of the heterosexual couple with 2.2 kids and the house and all of that. And what is going to mix up that American dream? And that can be a stigma because stigma is designed to keep you in place, keep you running with the social norm of what it's supposed to look like, what it's supposed to be when there's no such thing as a norm, actually, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it can, again, look however we decide we want it to look. Mm-hmm. So something else you mentioned, Ruby, is that a lot of our ideas, of course, about relationships come from media. Do uh-huh. you feel like there have been any examples that have done a really good job of portraying ethical non-monogamy well? Mm, that's a good question. And I can't think of the documentary right now. And I will send it to you later. There's a documentary done with Evita Sawyers. She's a polyamorous coach. and that was a good representation of it. There's a show called Wonderlust that was on Netflix, which is a good representation. So there's been a couple of documentaries and a couple of series done that actually nailed it really well on, you know, the basics of what opening a relationship looks like and how it doesn't have to look like the male, female, female dynamic. You know, it's a lot more than three people, you know, it's an actual family that's involved. And that's what I liked about those representations. But when media has it represented, like in the show Insecure, you know, they had it represented as something that was basically infidelity in that show, the show Insecure. Mm -hmm. It wasn't represented that well. There's uh, another, was it Love and Hip Hop? Look, I'm I'm older, so... (laughs) (laughs) There's a I think it was love and hip hop. Someone told me they had it misrepresented, not represented very well. And so that's the big thing for me is that these these popular culture is so powerful 
for individuals and how they do relationships. They get their ideas of how to be in relationships from, from popular culture. What it looks like is very important and that we're representing it as something that is a viable relationship choice. Hmm. Yeah. And I am interested to check out the documentaries that you shared, because I do think when we see it in popular culture, you never really see the conversations around boundary mm-hmm. setting. Right. And like these right. are the things that we're keeping for our primary relationship. And this is what our other relationships are going to look like. Like you don't typically see those conversations. No, you don't. You don't you don't see conversations around boundaries and agreements, period. You know, other than, you know, they there's conversation around use a condom that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, but there's not conversations around the emotional and mental aspects of opening your relationship because it, it's a mental thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you're going against the grain of what has been indoctrinated within you on what relationships look like. For me, I grew up with, you know, one of the things my mama used to say was that you, you better keep your man satisfied at home or he's going to go find it somewhere in the streets. That mm-hmm, kind of stuff, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. And for me to go against, you know, saying, well, it's OK if he goes and finds something else in the street. <laughs> right. Because it would have been a discussion. <laughs> it would have been a discussion. <laughs> yeah. You know, that the other happened. thing, as as I'm thinking about it, Ruby, I would imagine that a lot of what needs to be unpacked and undone related to people who are considering this is the sense of possessiveness that comes with, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. being with a partner, right? Like just the idea that they're talking to someone else or mm-hmm. like, what are y'all saying? And, you know, is this still special? How do you work with someone to kind of begin to unpack some of that? Oh, now that's the biggest conversation. Mm being possessive and territorial, which brings up jealousy and envy. Right. And so that is a a big conversation and you really have to get down to the root of, you know, and unpacking that, what do you fear you're going to lose or miss out on? You know, that FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what, what is it that is this person being with this person? What is it saying about you? Do you feel like you're not enough? You know, do you feel like your partner is wanting to be with someone else because they're comparing them to you? Like you're not doing this, so I'm going to go get it over here. And it's those types of competition. It's possessiveness, it's being territorial, which brings on the jealousy and the envy. And so having conversations around those three things are really important. And we have a term for that. It's called polyagony. Because it can be agonizing for people Mm -hmm. to share their mate, to feel displaced within a relationship. So that emotional, the emotional shift, that primal panic that happens with the idea that your mate is going to see someone else. That is, I think, the biggest conversation that we have in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, like with a lot of things, like you can talk about stuff and then it's very different in practice. Right. 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 So I would imagine there's a conversation kind of leading up to opening the relationship and then continuing conversations as it right. continues. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because theory and practice are two different things. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. So we're going to take a quick break and then come back with some community questions. We all know the importance of physical fitness. But for most of us, there's no class on inner fitness. Life coach and star of the own network drama, Queen Sugar, Tina Lifford sure didn't have a class, which is what led her to write the little book of Big Lies. 
a blend of personal anecdotes and meaningful practical advice. This little book will change your life, and we're offering our community a discount. Head on over to harpercollins.com and use the code Therapy for Black Girls for 20% off and free shipping on the little book of Big Lies. It's available in ebook, audio, and print now wherever books are sold. So, Ruby, we do have a couple of questions submitted from our community members that we would love for you to weigh in on. So the first question is, how do you manage being polyamorous in a pandemic? Oh, (laughs) that's an awesome question. I've been having that question a lot. I bet. (laughs) With creativity, there's for those who have established relationships already, that's been a lot of fun. Just you know, recognizing that a lot of the communal aspects and the physical connection that is involved within polyamorous relationships and keeping them nurtured, there's more creativity that happens. And so there is a lot of people who feel touch deprived because if you're solo polyamorous and you're living alone and you're not having anyone with you, you know, and you're used to going to your mate's house or, or, or seeing them and then you don't have it, there's that level of isolation and being creative and creating low-risk connections. For those in established relationships is having to break down barriers and boundaries and then build new ones in, in different ways. And so in itself, it has brought some challenges. Some relationships haven't survived because you get an opportunity to figure out what is our relationship based upon. But I think it has created a new shift in how we do relationships overall as a society, but especially in in polyamorous polycules, because, you know, I have a client who they hadn't seen their partner. They're used to seeing their partner every weekend, but haven't seen them in three months, you know, and the sadness and the grief that comes from not, you know, being able to see their partner and then leaning on another partner for help with that. But then they're feeling their sadness and their own grief. So it's, it's, it's been interesting with those established relationships. Now, for those who are who are wanting to date, who are polyamorous and date in a pandemic, that's been interesting also because I'm one of those people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have not met anyone in person at all because my mom is sick. So I, I don't risk anything when it comes to her. But for individuals who are establishing new ways of connecting, there's new creative ways of online dating, which I'm sure y'all have talked about since in your podcast before. But there is a lot of community being built around, you know, speed dating. I mean, there's entire events that happen in the poly community about still building connection because we are a community that knows how to do long distance relationship well. Mm -hmm. Um, we already have that skill set. And so how do we expand on that skill set in a time of a pandemic and in a time of emergency? There's been a shift of priorities for some people being polyamorous. They have shifted, you know, and started to focus on, you know, just being, they're not any less polyamorous, but they're not, they have shifted and just focusing on their primary relationship. That's a very complex thing. Typically when I have the conversations I've been doing podcasts with people having conversations about being black, polyamorous, and in a time of uprisings. I work a lot with 
this is probably too much information, but I've, I work a lot with people who are involved in, in frontline uprisings, you know, BYP, BL, BLM. And within mm-hmm. those communities, polyamory is, is a natural. You'd be surprised, you know, especially the BYP movement, our young people. I mean, they have activist pods around being polyamorous and what does that look like, how it has helped, you know, having those loving relationships during this pandemic and in a time of protest and in a time of uprising. So that is a, a, a podcast in itself talking about ways within communities the pandemic has strengthened and revealed a whole lot. Mm, that is interesting. I, I yeah. appreciate you sharing that. And I would imagine, you know, I'm actually not surprised because I think young people just, you know, they're younger, so they are not mm-hmm. as caught up in all of the ideas about what relationships have to look like anyway. Right. I think they feel much freer to kind of, you know, describe and be in relationships in the way that they choose. Right. It's a beautiful thing to watch how leaning on multiple loves within these times have actually been a great asset for many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would imagine. So a second question we have, and I think you kind of touched on this, we want to be sure the question is answered. Can someone identify as polyamorous and be in a monogamous relationship, but have polyamorous relationships outside of it? Yeah, you can. I call that the, the mixed orientation relationship is what I'm, I'm hearing, mm-hmm. is that, yeah, they're polyamorous. They're dating someone who is monogamous, but they still want to have other polyamorous relationships. Yes, that mm-hmm. is possible. Right. But of course, it would still require a conversation with the monogamous partner about what's happening. Yes, exactly. Everybody has to agree that this is going to happen. And what's challenging with someone who's monogamous dating someone who's polyamorous, which is what I call limited consent, because ultimately, most people don't want their polyamorous partner to date other people. But do they really have full consent in that? You know what I'm saying? There is a limitation to their consenting, but it's like a limited consent in that their partner is going to do what they're going to do. And if they want to be with that partner, they're going to have acceptance of who that partner is. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So, but still, even though I don't want people to get that confused into like a manipulation kind of thing, because I don't think that's what it is. Oh, no. It's not manipulation. And not like a, a ultimatum. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's an understanding like, yeah, I don't really love this, but I love but you. Kind of like you talked I love about you. earlier. I want you yeah. to be happy. And so I'm giving, yes. you know, limited consent to this. Yes. Yes. And that is it. There's no coercion. Right. It's not about power dynamic. It's about I love you and I want to support you. And I do have a choice if I want to be in a relationship with you. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Yes. Got it. Got That's it. The differentiation. Okay. So Ruby, you have already given us some great resources. So you mentioned designer relationships and rewriting the rules. Are there other favorite books that you have that you find yourself recommending pretty frequently? More Than Two is another good book I like to recommend. And Opening Up is another good book. More Than Two is by Eve Eve Rickard and Franklin Vaux. Opening Up is by Tristan Terramino. Love's Not Colorblind is the only book, well, not the only one, there's one other person, is written by a Black man, there's very few Black authors on polyamory, and so that's Love's Not Colorblind, and it's written by Kevin Patterson, so those are some books that I like to recommend. Okay, 
And any other documentaries or podcasts that you suggested? Yeah, I would like to send you the names of those documentaries. Got it. But the podcasts include Monogamish, which is with Jen, J-H-E-N. There's another one called Normalizing Non-Monogamy. There's Multi-Amory. And one more, which is Ollie Weekly. Ollie Weekly? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Podcasts. Perfect. And we will include all of those in the show notes. So if somebody wants to learn more about you and your work, would you share your website as well as any social media handles you like? Yes. My website is inamorata.me. That's I-N-A-M-O-R-A-T-A dot me. And you can find me at Black Sex Geek on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, I run a, a conference called Poly Dallas Millennium. It's our fifth year. And it's a polyamorous conference that centers folks of color who are non-binary, trans, and genderqueer. And our next one is November 6th through the 8th, and it's online. It's open to love, the virtual experience. And you can go to polydallasmillennium.com for that one. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today, Ruby. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. I'm so glad Ruby was able to join us for today's conversation. To learn more about her practice or the resources that she shared, be sure to visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 182. And be sure to text two sisters that might enjoy this episode right now. If there's a topic you'd like to have covered on the podcast, please submit it to us at therapyforblackgirls.com slash mailbox. And if you're looking for a therapist in your area, Don't forget to check out our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. If you want to continue digging into this topic and connect with some other sisters in your area, come on over and join us in the Yellow Couch Collective, where we take a deeper dive into the topics from the podcast and just about everything else. You can join us at therapyforblackgirls.com slash YCC. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Hey, ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, Let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girl Bomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girl Bomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. 
Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.